Welcome to Beyond the Roadmap, Product Talk with AWH, a podcast for product people, by product people. Join us as experts share their experiences and expertise to help you build great products. This is Ryan Frederick from AWH. This is Beyond the Roadmap, a podcast about building products. And with me today is Derek Seif. Derek and I have known each other for um, longer than either of us would want to admit. Uh, and we've riffed about building products on uh, many an occasion, often you know with an adult beverage involved. But that always makes, makes us smarter and funnier. Absolutely. Uh, right. So that's good. So thank you for doing this. Yeah. Appreciate it. Good to see you. Thank you for having me. And so we'll we'll jump into it. You've now done product at several companies, and you've done some consulting and some advising as well. What's the biggest misunderstanding that you've experienced and that you still see that people have around the product process and discipline? So good question. I think that there's a general lack of understanding about just what the product management discipline is, full stop. And, you know, I have worked in a couple companies in product, um, actually more than a couple, <laughs> and but the majority of them have been in the Midwest area. And so I think that's part of it is a regional sort of lack of understanding about what the product management discipline is. You know, for example, you know, I, I talked to a large organization recently that is looking to create an innovation lab. Okay. And I met with that individual and they were really talking about how are they going to build this lab? What are they going, who do they need? And as this person was describing the needs of that, I sat back and thought, hmm. That is a product manager. She needs a product manager to to fill that role, or a, a whole uh, maybe even group, a, maybe of, a set of product managers, set right? of product managers, given the scope of of what they are trying to achieve. And during the conversation, they didn't really under they didn't really call it a product manager, but they described sort of what it is. So mm-hmm. I think there's. There's just not a general understanding about what the product management discipline is or does. Now, I've worked with a couple of different organizations where I've had to start to, to define that. Yep. So, you know, as I go in and say, what is product management? What is the goal of product management? My answer to those are the product management is really a practice of continually driving the development, launch, and continued innovation of a company's product portfolio. I think the important word there is practice. It's a practice. And in that practice, there's a bunch of different processes that happen. But just like just like at a, uh, like being a doctor is a practice, right? You, can, you have a practice in the medical field. This is the practice of product management. Mm-hmm. And really the goal of that, and, and it's sort of an ode to Marty Kagan and his you know, philosophies, which I think are really a valuable source of good product management discipline and, and um, information, is that it's really to discover products that are valuable, usable, feasible, and viable, mm-hmm. right? Looking at those, those four different areas of assessment to 
um, really add customer value or create, create customer value and make a little money along the way. Mm -hmm. So that's sort of the long, long-winded answer for what I think product management is. The, you mentioned something interesting talking to that person that was spinning up this innovation lab. Mm -hmm. I think one of the challenges that many companies have around innovation is if you don't have a product practice inside of the company and you're trying to be innovative, I'm now doing air quotes and that you know is sort of irrelevant when it's, this is just um, auditory, but if you're attempting to do innovation and you aren't good at product, innovation really is then just an exercise in ideation, mm -hmm. right? Because without that sort of fundamental product discipline, your ability to actually do the, you know, the four things that you just covered, right, that Marty talks about mm -hmm. is you're going to remain at the very sort of superficial level of, well, we could do this and we could do that, but the product gives you the ability to execute, right, on whatever innovation, you know, um, ideas and, and new product concepts that you might be able to come up with. Mm -hmm. How does a company, it doesn't have a product management discipline, right? And they're now, because most of the pro companies that we think about that are good product companies, product is part of their DNA, yep. right? I mean, it, it, it has been there from day one that they've got to deliver products that customers value, appreciate, and, and want to use, right? How does a company that hasn't had a product management discipline, large, small, anywhere in between, injecting it seems to be a challenge if it's not part of the DNA to then get good at product from an, in, an injection perspective. So your question is how, how did they do that? Yeah. So how does a company that doesn't have product as a part of their DNA get good at product? So if you don't have product as part of your DNA, I think product and product management information is readily available. So let's start with that. There's lots of books out there. There's podcasts. There's education. Yep. So when you're looking across your organization, oftentimes there's you can identify individuals that understand those concepts, perhaps have even gone to read those books or really uh, educated themselves about product management and what good product management does. But in some, often you find in those organizations, they may not have the authority to make it any sort of change to affect that product discipline and to put those practices into place. Yeah, to operationalize it becomes the challenge, right? Correct. Because if you've got one person or even a, a handful of people that have now bought in, sort of learned what product is, it still remains very sort of theoretical and academic mm -hmm. if it doesn't get operationalized, Yep. right? That's right. So I think that it's really about finding the right leader that comes in and that has both the experience and can also have the credibility to come in and help change that and operationalize product management. Now, of course, as with anything, you have to have buy-in at the top from a leadership perspective, right? But the way I've seen it work is if you have buy-in at the top from, from the leadership and identifying those individuals that already are 
understanding of product management and have the in, are motivated to change and become part of that product management discipline as that leader comes in and they come and start defining their the, the processes surrounding that leader with those types those individuals that can help implement it throughout the entire organization because they're already at the organization mm-hmm. and they have the knowledge and some of the relationships and they can then uh, help you promote and uh, I don't know what the right word is to make it go throughout the organization. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Is um, that seemingly is um, easier said than done, right? Because there's cultural shifts that have to happen to be able to operationalize it, right? That's right. That you've got to get people, you've got to get engineering that's now probably had a very strong point of view in product direction and product functionality and usability across the board. You've probably had business that's had a very strong voice, right? Whether it's sales or marketing, right? Here's what we want you to build because here's what we want to sell and here's what we want to market, mm-hmm. right? And so you you end up sort of injecting product getting injected into an organization that hasn't yet had a product discipline Mm -hmm. in some ways it's i mean it's a good virus but -hmm. in some ways it's a virus now getting injected into an organism that hasn't yet had to deal with that operating and perpetuating inside of the organization yep how do you think about sort of the cultural things that have to sort of transform too as part of getting it operationalized i think with the lack of product management, somebody is always doing product management, right? Or, or multiple people are are trying to do little bits and pieces but not calling it product management. And there's probably a high percentage of it that just falls on the cutting room floor that is never even done because they don't have it or and don't know what to do. So coming in, there's a couple things that I look at is number one, we have to redefine some of the roles and responsibilities of the individuals that are already there. That's a challenging discussion and defining what product management is and what the goal is, which I said, talked about earlier in the podcast, helps to put that umbrella in, into place. So in your mind, is that the starting point to come in and define what it is, define the role and in sort of level set around this is product management and this is a product discipline and and to get people sort of at least aware at a very conceptual level about what it means. Yes. So, So coming, so coming in and saying, here's what product management is. Here's the goal talking about it at a conceptual level and spending some time framing out what product management is, step number one, Mm -hmm. one technique that I have found helpful is to leverage existing publication that is already out there that to say, this is not something that I invented, but there is many frameworks out there and lots of material out there that is written about how to do product management correctly. So, where the magic happens is taking those larger frameworks and best practices and figuring out now what does product management mean for this particular company? 
Yep. And it might be different for a startup, for a mid-sized company, and a large organization. And you'll implement different parts of the of that framework. So I, f I feel and have a, had experience where leveraging those outside resources is super helpful to get the organization on board. Now, once that organization is on board and you've really talked a lot about that high level, all that really does is provides you a air cover to go then execute and go do your product management work. Mm -hmm. And then it gives you the ability to refer back to that initial conversation. And how long, in your experience, does that initial conversation, that initial sort of education piece take? Is this something th that can happen fairly quickly and it can happen over the course of a couple of weeks? Or is this something that is really something that evolves in, and is done in drips over you know a couple of months or maybe even a year? Yeah. Coming into an organization and talking about that, that high-level piece is all great, but it's going to take a while for the organization to fully make a culture change to product. And like anything else, you know, the strategic part of it and the process part of it is the 20% and the 80% is the, is the execution piece. So when you're executing now on product management processes that you have to implement, each of the touch points within the organization are going to see the impact of what is being done different in order to drive the product forward. So one thing that a product manager has to understand in those types of situations is that as you're executing on a particular process, there's some additional time and thought cycles that you have to have to educate on what am I going to do why am I doing this? Then go and do it. Everybody will see the impact of that. And then go back to that same group and say, here's what I did and here's why I did it. So You, you almost end up managing several different streams and several different relationships as part of the process right, of injecting right. product. Right. So a simple example might be, in a product organization, you might change or streamline your release management process, right? Because the goal is going to be, how do I build high quality product and get it out the door fast to market so we can learn, adjust, etc. So in a release management process, the product management organization is going to, you know, work with the, the engineering team. They're going to develop the product and you're ready to do a release, you've defined the themes of your release and the goals and all the good product management things that you can do at, within your product management group. But now to prepare the market to get it out the door, you have to work with marketing. You have to work with customer success. So at that point in an organization, the marketing department might not be used to or understand what to do for a product release to the market. What needs to be done? Update the website. Maybe there's a press release. You know, how do you prepare the market versus customer success and all the things that they have to do to then communicate out to 
the existing customer base and how it affects and how do you prepare and, and train? How do you prepare sales? So going and doing the work and continuing to educate along the way is, I believe, is a formula for success. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, all of that makes makes total sense. It's not a you know it's not a singular relationship. It's not because product management is is a hub role, right? That's right. Ultimately, and so when you come in and you're you're sort of now injected into that equation, and now you're acting and serving as that hub that is in some way protecting the interest of the product, protecting the interest of customers. Also, while trying to fulfill the goals of the business, mm-hmm. there is a myriad of spokes, right, and relationships to maintain and, and to evolve as part of that. One of the challenges as part of that is you've got people that are used to doing things in particular ways, and some are going to be more willing to change and adopt and go through all of those things. When you experience pushback through any one of those sort of streams of communication and, and relationships, how do you deal with that? Or maybe one group is, is just not sort of getting up to speed as quickly as another group. Mm-hmm. And so do you, do you spend more time with that group? Do you dig in and do more education with them? Do you start evaluating people in that group to then go to leadership and say, Everybody's sort of jumping on board, but sales, you know, the director of sales, the VP of sales just keeps sorting to want to operate on their own, right? Mm -hmm. And they're not sort of grasping what's happening. How do you then sort of deal with any malcontents through the process that are beginning to inhibit the product management ability to be successful and then ultimately the product's ability to be successful? Mm -hmm. So the one unique thing about product management in general is, as you pointed out, it is the hub of a number of different spokes, right? So it affects the customer, the engineering team, operations, every part of the discipline. So, and one of the skill sets that you need to have is to influence heavily without having the, potentially the organizational hierarchy structure in order to get things done. I think some of this can be avoided by upfront setting all setting the goals at a high level of what the product is trying to achieve and ultimately aligned with where the business is going, right? So if you're focusing on the customer and everybody agrees with those goals, then each of those organizations that are struggling, you can always go back and say, hey, remember this, this is what we're trying to achieve. This is our sort of true north. This is our true north. This is what we're trying to go after. We we all agreed on this. I'm not trying to make your job harder sales, Right. right? but you can't start selling a product, right? You know, you know, six months before it's delivered and, and then thinking that you can drive the roadmap because you've got some prospect interested. Yep. And, and so, when you're going through that process, you can influence as much as you can along the way. And, you, and, and the goal is, if everybody believes, with, believes in the goal, as a product manager, I might be trying to get that product to market. And so trying to enable them and steer them in the direction that makes them successful and shows them that if you do this, this is all you and all about you to be successful and look at the things that you can accomplish if you do these things as it relates to the product, right? Yep. So that's sort of like the, you know, it's 
kind of a, it's the servant leader type of approach. Right. Right. Yep. So I think if you take that approach, you're certainly in a, in, in a better spot. Of course, there are cases where they're going to come back and not do it. Ways I've handled that in the past is identify, pull from previous experience and identify the pitfalls and explain to them, okay, I've seen this movie before. Here's what happens typically if we go down this path. And oftentimes there's a realization to say, oh, okay, I, I understand that. And that might help avoid them. But sometimes you get to a point, and this is like anything else, when you can see it going in the wrong direction. They're doing the wrong thing against any best practice out there or your guidance or your experience. And sometimes things have to fail to get better. So as long as you can control that failure to a, a point where it's isolated and controlled and everybody's aware that this is happening, then that might be a, a good path to get to, to almost fail fast, learn the lesson, and then move on from there. And then have a, have a movie to be able to replay that they start in. Correct. Right. That's right. So then it's not my movie anymore. It's our movie. Right. And say, right, that we can go back to. So there's all kinds of different options. And of course, you want to start, start with the education and influence piece. But if you end up there, you end up there as long as you can control it. Yeah. So as I was thinking about our conversation and thinking about injecting product into a, an environment that hadn't yet had product, one of the things that I, that I thought about was, because we talk a lot about technical debt, mm -hmm. but I think there's also product debt, right? Mm -hmm. and, and that is sort of part and parcel with technical debt to a degree. But as I sort of thought about it, you know, product debt is, you know, can be the technical piece, but product debt can also be the fact that, that it's gotten positioned improperly, right? The messaging isn't right. The brand and the feel isn't right. The pricing isn't right, right? I mean, product is so much more than just the technical component. And you can be stepping into a situation where there's a lot of product debt. Have you experienced that? And then how do you think about dealing with that when you're now coming in trying to inject a product discipline and now you've got to deal with product debt to be able to to evolve away from that product debt. Fun, right? That's a yeah, <laughs> fun and a big and a big question. The first thing I will say is I really like how you define the whole product and saying it's not just about the technology that's delivered via especially in the software industry that the user is using, it's the entire experience from the buying experience to the customer service experience. So right. that's good. You know, when coming into an organization and looking across the entire product and trying to assess where the biggest challenges are, uh, or as you framed it, product debt, trying to assess, okay, which ones are, can, are, are easy solves and which ones are the solves that align with where the business is going in the short term? And constantly communicating with the rest of the leadership team to understand what those goals, those short-term goals are and how we can then fix each one of those product debt problems in a prioritized order. 
I know that's a very high level. Yeah. Are you a roadmap person? Roadmaps seem to be getting a little bit of, of, of black eye and a little bit of bashing now where I've seen lots of articles and posts and philosophies around, you know, roadmaps or, you know, roadmaps are bullshit and, you know, and you don't really need roadmaps, especially if you're operating in a, a very agile way. Where do you come down on roadmaps? Yep. So the goal of the roadmap for me is to increase communication amongst the rest of the leadership team, the board, and the rest of, of the company. I come down into a goal-oriented roadmap and simplified that the roadmap is at a very high level in terms of, think about it as an epic level, very large items. And the items that are on that roadmap are items that everybody on the leadership team understands and so does the board. Right, so that takes away a lot of the little features that are in there, mm-hmm. and it's also as simple as now, next, future, right? So breaking into those three buckets, and really what it's trying to do is it's just showing a priority of of what we're working on. Each of those items is aligned with one of the goals that we've already decided on as a as a product committee team. And the assumption is that each of those product goals are, a, are aligned with where the business wants to go. So let's assume that. Mm-hmm. Then really what it's doing is it's driving a larger priority discussion. So everybody knows what are we working on now? What's coming up next, which basically translates into what is the product team doing discovery on in order to figure out and then what are we thinking about in the future as some of the high candidate items? And then there's a bunch of backlog stuff that we're not even going to talk about. Breaking it up into those three areas on a per-product basis also drives the discussion when you throw it up in front of the leadership team is what's not on there that you would expect to be on there. So purposely removing some things also drives a discussion. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I really like that. Yeah. So it's as simple as in-dev, in-discovery, and stuff we're thinking about we don't even know if we're going to do. What general timelines do you put around those? Like what what's now represent? What does next represent? What does future sort of represent? So if I'm pushed for those type of timelines, I think a month basis can be okay. Okay. Now, I've made a mistake in my career. Full, you know, most... <laughs> I mean... Most people haven't. I, mean, I don't know what that's like, so <laughs> right. educate me. I would like to make mistakes. <laughs> right. I've, I've gone into, I've gone into um, both leadership meetings as well as board discussions with a long-term roadmap with quarters and months associated with that and have been asked the question, wait a minute, how in the world do you know what you're going to do 12 months from now, nine months from now? That's fair. Right. So there's, that's not even a, let's not even talk about that. Let's just talk about the things you're doing now, the things that you're learning about and discovering yep. and the things that you pretty much know are on the hot list. So the other thing I, I don't like to get into is getting into the details of scoring each one and putting the effort and all that stuff. I think that's a waste of time. It certainly is at the, at, at the high level, right? Yeah. Uh, because... 
at that point, if you've made a decision that this is something to tackle now, it's high value, it's high priority, whether it's easy or hard is sort of irrelevant. That's right. If you've made the decision that this is the most important thing we can be working on right now for the product, yep. that's the most important thing, yep. whether it's going to take two days or whether it's going to take two months. Right. So I agree with you. I, yeah. I, I think we often make product decisions through a filter of easy or hard, faster, long term, right? And I push back on those, you know, with, with clients saying easy or hard is irrelevant. If we've made a decision, this is what needs to be done. That's what needs to be done. If it's going to take two weeks, awesome. If it's going to take two months, that's what it is. Right. That's right. And, and, and often, if it's going to take two months, then I would suggest you should relook at that and see if you can break it up yeah. into one-month items and deliver something in one month. Yeah. Um, what can we chunk that gets us more short, short-term you know, milestones? That's right. Right. Those conversations also can often be part of the product process. One of the challenges of injecting product into an organization that hasn't yet had it is product. the product process sort of requires discipline, being egoless, valuing learning over knowing, mm-hmm. right? working iteratively and closely with customers, et cetera. Some things that are not instinctual right, and some things that actually go against human nature. Mm-hmm especially in a situation where you've got an inventor, a founder, or even somebody inside of a large enterprise, right, Mm -hmm. that says, we should go go do this thing, and I'm kind of the champion of it inside the organization. Those people often have their own visions and ideas for what the product should be, can be, and working with those people to then apply a layer of product i.e. discipline, on top of that, super challenging. Mm-hmm. How have you dealt with that? What are some ways to build a bridge between that person who's the inventor, idea person, founder, catalyst, innovator, to then layer product, the product discipline over that to ensure that what that person actually wants manifested mm-hmm. gets manifested even though they don't really see the value and benefit and they just want to, you know, instinctually sort of go after it. Mm-hmm. That's a big question. That that's a whole kettle of fish. <laughs> <laughs> so, what's interesting, and in, as I reflect on my career and focus on a product management discipline, is I, I think this question gets into the different types of product managers, and what I have found in my career is that I really like to partner with the founder, the idea innovation person, inventor, I think is, is what you called them, and help to provide a path developed through a product to help meet their, their vision. One of the other things that in my product management experience and role is that I'm often injected into product management roles where I don't have industry experience and I may not have the specific market experience. So whether you're talking about the energy and utility industry, the transportation industry, or the healthcare industry, as I walk into those industries and have been brought in 
by organizations that are actually value the fact that I have not been in those particular industries and I don't come in with any sort of a bias. I come in with the practice of product management where I now flip my mindset to a learning and questioning role where I'm really asking lots of questions and working with that inventor, founder type of a person to help take the kernel of what their idea is and turn it into from an idea to a hypothesis and start asking questions around that. And if I can transform how they think about it and move their mind to more of a a testing mode or a discovery mode, a more even scientific sort of approach approach, then what I have found is that often freeze their mind a little bit and say, because they want, they have an idea, they want to get to market fast. And a lot of times they see all this stuff that they have to do in order to get it to market. But if I can change their mind and say, let's think about this as a question, because we don't really know the answer. Let's go do these few things to test it and to test what we believe to be true and I can help you in that process and go do a lot of this work, then that becomes a, a good team to go out and, and do that. Yep. You know, I, I, I worked with a, a founder that was super excited about this long-term vision stuff and where we could go and what could, we could do in five to 10 years. And my role with that individual was to say, I, I love it. I agree. I also want to get there. But first we have to do this. Right. And then we have to do that. And then we have to do the other thing. So outlining that path to ultimately getting to where their vision is or what their idea is, is a, uh, there's an art to it. Yeah. It's, it's not a science. I want to touch on two other things yep. before we conclude. One is, and we were talking about this a little bit before we got started, is the sort of state of of thrashing, right? Where you've got an organization that is trying to accomplish more than can be reasonably accomplished with a set of team members, resources, time, money, energy, all of it, and a lack of focus and thrashing will, will eventually kill a product, kill several products, and maybe even kill an organization. Mm-hmm. How do you get people to go from? Because I think I think that is that's also a mentality, and that is a a little bit of a culture, right? Of well, sure, we can tr- we can bring four products to market at the same time. We're smart people. We're capable people. Why can't we bring four products to market at the same time? Mm-hmm. And it's almost looked at as well. If you say we have to focus, and we can't realistically bring four products to market at the same time, then you can be looked at as the sort of naysayer, right? in the negative Nelly. And it's like, well, you know, why can't you, why can't we, are you saying we're not smart enough, not capable enough, you know, what have you, but that thrashing, you know, I've seen it over and over again will kill, you know, uh, none of those products will ultimately be successful and it'll probably kill the organization in the process. Mm-hmm how do you think about beginning to 
and are there ways to change that mindset and to get an organization from operating in a very thrashing, you know, environment to a more regimented, you know, potentially successful environment? Or does it take them, as we were talking about earlier, being a star in their own movie to then realize, oh, yeah, trying to bring four products to market at the same time and ha living that thrashing life, you know, hashtag thrash life, probably not good. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I think the answer is very similar to, um, you know, pulling on it, pulling on an individual's and in my, in my case, my past experience to try to play the movie out for that individual, for, for that person and explain what will happen if we do this or what the cost of it is, I think is, is good. You can, you can try to, you know, fail gently in each of those. I think the, one of the key things that I've often used is go back to going back to the numbers because really quantifying the actual cost of doing a particular product, let alone four at one time and show what the numbers actually look like in actual, you know, resources and financials, right? then that's very difficult to argue with because a lot of times that financial picture will can, can change the, it'll change the discussion because especially in a small company or a bank account, or I'm sorry, small company or a startup, you only have a certain number of dollars to to go there. So and, I and even most product teams inside of big companies same only have, you know, a certain amount of, of you know time, energy and money allocated right to any one particular initiative yep. or a set of initiatives. Yep. Right. And yeah. so it's yeah, I think I think, you know, I think almost going back to the roadmap and saying, okay, trying to accomplish four nows now, mm -hmm. like let's talk about the reality of that. Yes. Right? Yep. And and when you start applying time and team members and numbers to it, it's like this is impossible. Right. right? We can't expect to apply, you know, four nows now. Right? That's right. That's right. And and then you know, the numbers often tell it. And yeah. you can't it's hard you know, this gets back into something we haven't touched on is the whole you know, data-driven product management, right? So this is just another piece of data that's really can't argue with it and everybody's looking at it. You know, the the numbers and saying, okay, it's going to cost us this much to get this product out. So we're good with that, right? And this is where our resources are going. It, this also goes under um, the, the, the technique of having a discussion about product positioning or packaging and having a big meeting about it until it's actually written down on a piece of paper and everybody's looking at the words on the paper in black and white, then you, you're not really going to make a lot of great progress because everybody's going to walk away from that discussion without actually looking at something that's very concrete. Yeah. So I've often, this positioning is a, is a good way to do this is, to write it down, send it out to everybody that's in that discussion and say, well, wait a minute, that's not really what we're trying to say here. So, right. so it's the same with the numbers. It's the same with any sort of data that you can use to help make your case to for a particular product or product feature, because if you're not going to be able to defend it, 
and defend the position that you're trying to uh, of the thing that you're trying to suggest then you're toast right i want to touch on one final thing especially as it relates to in, in injecting product into uh, an organization that hasn't had it yet there used to be, it used to be that being first with a product meant everything right because you could create a moat and the ability for you to create space between you and potential competitors was insurmountable in a lot of cases. That's not really the case anymore. Being first doesn't matter as much, doesn't have as much value, doesn't have as much competitive value in horsepower as it used to. And now having the best product at any point in time in that product's sort of life cycle matters much more. And a product that is low friction, that's high value, you know, for customers and users, et cetera. But oftentimes when product is getting injected into an organization that hasn't yet had a product discipline, first is still sort of a driver, right? That, you know, we've 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 got to be, you know, we've got to get out there first with it and and that gives us some sort of significant advantage. How do you think about this balance of first versus best? speed you know versus value etc because that is that is a challenge for any product person inside of any organization of balancing these sometimes conflicting priorities so when i think about this i really go back to in terms of the best products Especially, and and I guess this might be some an important piece of, of background, especially in the 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 B two B product world. So the majority of my experience has been in business to business, or business to business to consumer type of products, where the user experience and and design aspects of a particular product or product experience will often be a winner in terms of the best product because users out there are used to more high, you know, consumer focused Apple like products that have a really good experience. So if, so the making sure that, that the product that you're pushing out has a really good to use your term frictionless experience is I would err on that versus pushing something out that's a crappy experience but has that value in um has has that additional feature in it. Mm-hmm. So I think that's one thing that I think about in yep. terms of of getting mar- getting it out to market in terms of putting that feature out versus the value that it provides because a lot of times that usability is a differentiator out there in the market because people will, because it's, it's easier to use. Well, consume consumerism from a product usability perspective has certainly infiltrated the B2B space, Yep. right? I mean, it used to be where you could build a B2B product, the user experience didn't have to be awesome, the usability didn't have to be great. The UI didn't have to be great. There could be a, even a lot of friction as part of it, mm-hmm. and you you could sort of get away with it. Yep. Um, and I think those days are mostly gone. Yeah. I think there are some sectors where probably it still exists where you've got a very captive audience. 
So in in regulated, highly conservative industries, you probably don't necessarily have to have the best frictionless product, and maybe you can get away with it. But outside of that, you know, mm-hmm. I think that you've got to you've got to be focused on building a consumer grade that's right. product, even in the B two B space. That's right. Well, Derek, thank you for joining me. Great seeing thank you. you. Uh, I appreciate the conversation. And this is Ryan Frederick from AWH. This has been Beyond the Roadmap, a podcast about building products. We will see you next time. Need some help with product? AWH is a digital product consulting, user experience, and software development firm here to help you create great digital products. Check out www.awh.net or follow us on Twitter at awhnet to learn more.